In this very room There's quite enough love For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear Oh, Spirit One Spirit Is in this very room In this very room In this very room. So I invite you to just take a wonderfully deep, relaxing breath in this moment. And let's take one together in this moment. Take it in. One, two, three, in. And let's release it on an ah. Ah. What I know in this moment as we come together and as we, we come into to union and synchronicity of breathing together, there is a collective richness, each one, that divine presence of life, in and through and as all of life. There is nothing on this planet more sacred than another thing that is in form, for it all comes from source. You and I come from source as well. And so I know that that life is our life. And affirming that and breathing and relaxing into that, into that divine nature, into connecting with our physical being in a beautiful, powerful, amazing way and honoring that body temple this day. I know that all is well. All is in divine right order. Everything necessary for you and I to have bubble up in our awareness, perhaps to choose in a new way, to live in a new way, to make different choices based on where we are, or to continue to enhance the choices that we have already made. Whatever it may be, I celebrate this day in great gratitude, the opportunity to choose and to continue to walk this beautiful path upon this beautiful planet. I give thanks for this day. I give thanks for beautiful music. I give thanks for powerful and wonderful written words, for the opportunity to be alive to celebrate the, the beautiful, exquisite, simple, everyday moments. And in that, they become extraordinary. So I know this day is extraordinary in every good way as I see through the eyes of the mystic, through the eyes of the infinite. That life, my life, that life, your life. For this, I give thanks for all that is available, all that has brought us to this point, and all that is awaiting our awakening, our welcome, our embrace, and our expression. For this, I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Well, good morning. I want to thank Reverend Catherine McLeod for her um, service last week and doing the, the Sunday service in my absence. I was in California with my son who graduated, which, yeah, it was a, really a fun thing. 
And so I thank you. It was great to be able to be there with him and, and uh, watch that happen because uh, there, was, there was part of me that, 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 part of me that uh, has doubt, that doubted this would ever happen. So it happened and it was great. And it was great to, to uh, spend time with, with uh, my son and my daughter, that, uh, the California part of the family. So we're talking about the, uh, the 10 laws of healing and, and it relates very nicely to this idea of meditation. And we talked about mindfulness, we've talked about heartfulness. And I know that, that Reverend Catherine shared some ideas around meditation last week with you. And I wanted to expand on it a little bit because meditation is a wonderful practice, but it, we need to have practical application with it. And there's some limitations in it uh, with these practices where I think we sometimes get stuck or sometimes we're not able to, to, to gain traction with that. So I'm just going to peek back here. We're going to pull up a scre- uh, the, the first slide, that, that, uh, the, the first five. I'm going to talk about the first five uh, laws of um, healing this week, and we'll do the second five next week because they're, they're, um, uh, it's a rich body of work that I've been inspired by. Years ago, I, Laura and I did a, my wife Laura and I did a um, workshop at the Omega Institute with Elizabeth Lesser, and she I bought her book when we were there, and, and uh, she's really been an inspiration over the years, and it's, it's dog-eared, and it's written, she's actually autographed it for me, and I thought I lost it a couple of weeks ago, so I was in some affirmative prayer finding the book again. But anyway, it was really inspired by some of her work, and she's just a remarkable, amazing woman, Elizabeth Lesser. So the, I just want to see what's up. There we are. There's the first five laws. We care for things that we love. The body remembers separating body image from body reality, coming into animal presence, and listening to the body. Because where we, where we do this work is in this physical form. And so I wanted to flesh a few of these ideas out with you today because it really is about we're in this form for a reason. And we have spent a lot of time in the evolution of consciousness upon this planet in, in, in many ways uh, ignoring it, or discounting it, or thinking that there's something wrong with this because there's impulses we have to act in certain ways that then, of course, reinforce this idea that there's something wrong with the, the, the physical form. And a lot of theology has reinforced that idea. But the reality is, and I'll, I'll um, uh, share with you, is the soul is happy by nature. This, this is a quote from Hazrat Inyat Khan, and he was an amazing Sufi. He's no longer with us, but he brought the Sufism uh, tradition to the West. And Sufis are the mystics of the Islamic tradition. They're the lovers of God. So Rumi is uh, the best-known Sufi on the planet. Poetry and song. And, and Hazrat Inyad Khan was a, a masterful musician. So his ministry was all about his music, kind of like Martin Kerr or, or, or Anna Beaumont or Karen Porker or Brown Anderson. But his ministry was really around music. And, and so he combined the music with the mystical. And he said, the soul is happy by nature. The soul is happiness itself. It becomes unhappy when something is the matter with its vehicle, its instrument, and the body is our instrument. It's tool through which it experiences life. Care of the body, therefore, is the first and most important principle of religion. Care of the body is the first and most important principle of religion. Isn't that interesting? Because I didn't get any of that growing up, you know? And it's it's quite fascinating. Actually, there he is right there. That's a picture of him with his uh, instrument. Uh, an amazing man and, and uh, remarkable consciousness that has influenced a lot of the Western way of thinking. But the reality is there's nothing more sacred in physical, in physical creation than anything else. It all comes from source. And yet we, we value it or we compare it or we get into the competition. 
But it's interesting because how are we to believe, I've heard it said, and maybe you've heard this as well, that we are created in the image and likeness. Anybody ever heard that besides me? And okay, so we're created in the image, of, uh, image and likeness of the infinite. And, and that is fully orbed, and that, that life is our life, as we affirm. And then there's this sort of this idea in the culture that even though I'm created in the image and likeness of God, that I am rotting within with sin. There's, there are people in the world that actually embrace that and, and look at that as a way of, of doing um, their theology and doing their religion, which is crazy-making. We either are the image and likeness of the infinite or we're not. And so then if I'm claiming that and, that, and, and then I'm tagging on, but I'm rotten, rotten with sin and I'm nothing better than a worm in the dirt, the reality is our bodies are materialized spirit. Our physical form is and so one of the important things around meditation, mindfulness, heartfulness, is that when we're doing our meditation, if you're in the meditation practice or you pick up the booklet or you're, you, know, you have a bit of a practice, you're a little wobbly with it, whatever it is, is it's so powerful to envision our bodies as sacred vessels. I read an article, I'm reading a book uh, um, by Joe Dispenza. Joe was in um, uh, What the Bleep Do We Know? He's a, I think he's a chiropractor doctor and he's brilliant. Written a book called Losing Your Mind So You Can Create a New One because we've, we fall into these habits of, of thinking. And he talks about this experiment that they, the scientists did. They had people flexing one of their fingers for an hour each day. This was the exercise. They had one control group that was doing this for an hour every day. They had another control group that was imagining it for an hour. And you know, you've heard these reports of the shooting the baskets. The other control group just imagined. They didn't move their finger. And then the third group did nothing. And they measured. And they found that there was a 30% increase in strength I don't know how you measure the strength of that. I guess you pick up a dumbbell with your finger as you flex it. Uh, 30% increase in strength, but the group that imagined it had a 22% increase. And then, of course, the control group that did nothing didn't have any effect. But quite interesting how... So if, if, if we're able to do in our meditation to, to flood our body with ideas and understand that, that this is such an amazing place for us to have an opportunity to gain traction in our spiritual uh, practice. Uh, it it t- takes on a whole other level in our meditation. Mindfulness and heartfulness invite us to slow down, to rest, and listen. If, and and um, Elizabeth Lesser wrote this. I started this month's discussion with this quote. Spirituality is a fearless, relaxed, and open-hearted investigation into life and death. It is spirituality is a fearless, relaxed, and open-hearted investigation into life and death. She follows then, healing, spiritual healing is a fearless, relaxed, and open-hearted investigation into the workings of the body in health and disease, in living and dying. Would make sense. The first principle that was up there, um, if we can go back to that first slide again, is we care for the things that we love. And so in other words, you know, have you ever seen grandparents with a, with a grandchild? And, and you know, I've had opportunities to witness this myself in my own life, but there's, there's just this unconditional love. I mean, watch, watch Jim O'Neill taking care of his granddaughters, you know? It's just such a beautiful thing to watch because we care for them. And so we know we've never had more information on the planet than we do now about health and nutrition. I mean, we know more about that stuff than, than any other time in the, in the history of the planet. Do you remember your parents? Did your parents go to the gym when you were a kid? Did they have their Nike outfits on? They strut down there with their gym bags? My dad didn't. They didn't even have a gym when, you know, where I live. You, know, you just went out and did, did some more physical work. But we know more and more and more about this. So why is it, the question is then, why is it is, uh, that we know so much more, but we seem to, to lack the motivation 
to follow through with the practices that we know, and I'll include myself in this group, the practices that we know are helpful and valuable uh, long enough so that the magic that they offer us can show up. Because we all know that if we do certain things uh, over and over enough, they, they, they show up in a, in a new way. Whether it be uh, um, you know, starting a savings account and, and being consistent with that, or eating in a new way, or moving in a new way, whatever it is. So why do we lack the traction? And Elizabeth Lesser and I would agree with her, says that it's because we don't, love, we don't care for the body. We don't love the body. Because we've been conditioned to look, see beyond the body and not to honor it. In fact, it's a sacred temple. And, and the vitality and, the, and the, the joy of being able to move on this planet in a beautiful way is just so important. But there's all these other myths and, and biases and, and criticisms that they get locked into it. So we care for the things that we love. So the first task, the first principle in healing is to fall in love with our bodies. Because when we love things, we're more motivated to, to take care of it and to care for it in a beautiful way. I mean, if you've ever been around a musician and their instrument, they're very careful with their instrument. Wouldn't you say, Martin, you don't just take the guitar and throw it in the back of your car when you're done. No, there's a case he carries it in because it's important. He wants to use it again and he values it. But it's so obvious and yet it speaks volumes to how do, we, how do we grow the traction to take care of ourselves? The mindfulness, the heartfulness, to flood our body with the ideas instead of looking at our body in ways that, that are not life-enhancing. So the first one, we care for the things that we love. Number two, the body remembers. I want to play a, a clip. This is the beautiful Stephen Levine. St- Stephen and Andrea Levine have done amazing work on the planet, working with people that are, are going through the transitions of their life ending. And he, t- he have, has a short clip here I want to share with you. There they are. He's the author of A Year to Live. They live pretty much in isolation. They have done that for years, and they work. They go into hospice, and they work in amazing ways with people. So we'll cue this up. We've got... Experience uh, throughout life. There are, in every day, little griefs. Um, the um, the uh, woman who is who come to the counter and is a, waiting for the salesperson to come over to them, and then a man comes over next to them, and she, the salesperson turns toward the man. That's, that's a kind of rejection. That's a grief. You get on the bus, and the guy says, oh, you don't have any change, and they get, uh, you get that kind of energy from another human being. That's another grief. And these things build up, and they make, you know, I, I see that a lot of people are more willing to die than they need to be. Because life is just so hard, they want out. And it causes, it makes it difficult for healers, for attending nurses, for uh, physicians to get their, their best intentions through. Because the person has been closed down by all this unattended little griefs. As Andrea says, these five and 10 pound weights. We start carrying, you know, and every day, if you work in an office, the more people you work with, the more little energies you pick up, the more little rejections, the more little where somebody doesn't hold your gaze, where somebody has something better to do than you. Now, it may be so that that's so, and their intentions may be, they may regret that they don't have time for you. It isn't that what they're doing, it's what you're feeling. And you can say, well, that's not rational. Well, I think to be... Uh, to really have your heart open, you have to go beyond the rational. 
because the rational says, well, they did something wrong to me. Right? So I can be angry at them. Sure, you can be angry at them. There is nobody who suffers more from your anger than you do. I mean, it tightens you up. It, it, we're coming, this, it's really the same theme through much of what we're saying. We, it, we tighten up, we react, we tighten up, we respond, we open up. In that opening is a process of making life that much more worth living. So we're talking about the griefs. You know, it's a, it's a cumulative thing. And so it's, we all go through this if we're out in the world. We go through things, you know, someone came in this week to share a bunch of insights and, and gossip about me. And I just sat there the whole time and I thought, wow, I get to do my forgiveness work because I don't want to carry this five and 10 pound weight. And, uh, but, but for all of us, if we're alive on the planet, we have these things. So someone doesn't hold our gaze and we don't know if it's personal or not. Or someone is, is rude or, or, or hurried or, or whatever. And we internalize it. And we store it somewhere. And the body remembers. The body remembers. I know where I store my stress when I go to, the, to get my back adjusted. You know, sometimes he can't move anything because I'm just as tight as a banjo string in the middle of my back. And so I'll say, well, go home and relax a little bit and come back tomorrow. We'll see if we can get things to move. But, but for all of us, so the body remembers and we carry these things with us. And we store it and we store it. And as Stephen Levine said, the, the problem with it is the challenge is many times it becomes so uh, painful and heavy that we just want out. Why would I want to continue? I, I said to someone very close to me a while back that, you know, with the new research based on what um, um, Austin Vickers, when we showed his movie here, uh, the people versus the state of illusion. He talked about well, what we know now with m medical sciences. You know, people, if you're 20 years old now, there's no reason why you can't live to be 150. And I shared that with someone that was in her late 70s, and she's like, ooh, I don't know about that. And, and so it, it was just an indication of, of, you know, some of that burden that she was carrying, and this idea that I'm just going to continue to deteriorate and I may outlive my, my resources, all those little time stresses that we talked about a few weeks ago. But I think it's so important to understand that the body does remember. And what we feed it and when we have an opportunity. So is that our stuff to carry? Do we need to carry this or not? And, and, and that's part of the challenge for us, being in, in relationship with one another. Is it my stuff? Is this mine? Is this mine to carry? Number three is we separate body image from body reality. To separate body image from body reality, there's a wonderful TED Talk uh, with a model on uh, talking about her career and what she's done. And she cited a statistic that said that of all the runway models in the world last year, now these models make, and this is, of course, this is, she's very tall, and she said, I'm a, I'm a genetic, uh, I'm, I won the genetic lottery. I'm tall, I'm slender, and I'm the right fit, size to be a model. And she said, the reality is there were 647 women that walked the, the, the walk modeling clothes last year on the planet that make, you know, make something of a living at it, which is such a small percentage of who we are. But we are inundated with these images and images of what the, the perfect body form looks like. And yet, we are, all of us, are a remarkably crafted vessel to carry us through lives. All of us have this beautiful physical form. And yet we compare ourselves, we can find ourselves comparing ourselves to the perfect physical form. We see the magazines, we watch television, and everyone is, you know, it's, it's this, this ideal that we are exposed to. And in fact, it's such an unrealistic reality. 
and to, and to separate ourselves from that and simply love to flood our bodies with love. So when we sit in meditation, there's an idea. I'm going to flood my body with love. I'm going to love it right here. I'm not going to say to myself, you know, if I were 20 pounds lighter, I'd be lovable. Or if I was 100 pounds lighter, I'd be lovable. Or if I were six inches taller, I'd be lovable. Or six inches shorter. All those little qualifications right now to just embrace and love who you are, your physical form. And it's, it's transformative for every cell within our bodies. So in meditation, you sit there and you, and so when I, when I have t- tightness now, you know, I've been having little problems with my legs and my back. And so I'll sit and I'll, I'll, I'll just pour energy and love into that area. Just, just love it. Because I know that the complaining that I do and the limping and the puling around and the moaning and the groaning is just si- simply creating more and more of what I don't want. But it's so hard to pull ourselves out of that because it's such a good, it's so much fun to do at times, isn't it? To love being, you know, to love being miserable. So there's some, the, um, so to separate body reality, body image from body reality. And then the talk about, she talks about coming into animal presence. Elizabeth Lesser talks about coming into animal presence, which is really embracing our body. In many of the, the, the um, indigenous cultures, it's the embracing of the body, and they identify, they have a totem, they identify with the, uh, the animal in their totem. When we went to John of God, one of the practices she talks about in this is, is that one of the ways we access that is through more rest and sleep. More rest and sleep will connect us with our bodies in a deeper way. When you go to, to that experience, most of what you do there is rest and sleep. You go through some very powerful energetic experiences and then you're asked to rest and sleep because the body's regenerating and the body's readjusting. Anna was here uh, a week ago Wednesday, did a beautiful talk on the chakras and talked about the current and the amazing experience that she's had with uh, the, the, uh, the, the crystal bed. That's been a really interesting discussion too. I have people come up to me that are very upset that we have a crystal bed in this community and, and that I've, you know, all the, the story around that and I I'm, and I'm just don't have anything to say other than how can you be so adamant about something you've never experienced? You know, how could, could you go to Brazil? What do we need this guy for? I said, well, you know what? I have a, pra- I have a practitioner in my life. I have a, someone that helps me in prayer work. So how is this different that I go there and have someone help me with my spirituality and my connecting? To me, it's the same thing, but if it's not a practitioner, if it's not through, the, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh. I wish you well with that. I just can't, I can't slow down long enough to, for you to catch up, and I get it. You don't agree. But it's just very interesting how, and, and, I, and I can see myself at times where I've had an opinion about something I've never experienced. I don't know. I, couldn't, I can't speak to that many times. And so I've learned, I've learned that, that if it's not within my scope of experience, I don't have any business talking about it. I'm just making stuff up. So this idea of coming into animal presence. And there's some things that come up for us. There's some tools that we use. There's practices that are very popular. Brene Brown, uh, who's done a lot of work around the shame and the, and the guilt work on the planet, talks about this extensively. And she says, one of the things she talks about is this desire for perfectionism. That we don't do things, we don't move forward in our lives because we feel like we have to be perfect. I go through this every week. I know that Reverend Connie experiences it, I know that Reverend Catherine experiences it, and anybody that gets up and does a presentation. You go through this challenge with perfectionism. What if the talk is imperfect? Oh my God, what if the song is imperfect? What if, what if Martin gets here and he, he's not, his song's not perfect? It's just alive in us. 
And if you carry it out, perfectionism is, it speaks to external validation. It speaks to, geez, I hope I do good and I hope people like it. But when you are healthy, see, there's a difference between perfectionism and healthy striving. Healthy striving is an internal drive to bring the best of what we have today. Whatever it is we're doing, and then when it's over, it's over. Voltaire said, Voltaire said, perfectionism is the enemy of our good. And many times we don't step forward in our gifts because we don't think they'll be perfect. And I know this, every time I write an article, I just finished writing the articles for the 30 daily guides for Science of Mind magazine, and every time I sit down to write one, I have to deal with this idea, it has to be perfect. And then, and then I'm gonna put it out there, and people are gonna read it, and what are they gonna think of it, and oh my, on and on and on, it's like, shut up. But I have to deal with that every time I sit down, and it's just that, that idea of how, and I deal with it every week here. You know, Wednesday, I'm like, I got nothing. I got nothing to talk about, nothing, nothing, nothing. I was over there talking to um, Carolyn. She was working as our Sunday coordinator, and I had to keep borrowing her pen because I said, this, is a, this is, happens every week. God keeps writing this talk all the way up to I deliver it. So I've got, I've got my notes typed out, and then I've got notes around my notes. I said, I, you know, and I, I said to her, I'm, I'm, God and I are negotiating right now. Could we do this Wednesday afternoon instead of Sunday morning, about five minutes before it happens? But it's, it's fascinating. There's this need for perfection. And so the way we can totally escape this is to just stay at home and do nothing. Because then nobody will criticize us and nobody will complain. I mean, isn't it true? How many of us don't step into our gifts because we're worried somebody will have an opinion about it? One of, <laughs> thank you, Beth. I agree. Me too, you know? I mean, I had a dream when I was a kid to go to Los Angeles to be an actor. Well, that's another one I get a lot of. Oh, we hear, oh you're just an actor. Oh, thanks. What does that mean? What if I was a plumber? Oh, you're just a plumber. Okay. I mean, all of us have had careers throughout our lives. Ernest Holmes, I always said, Dr. Holmes was, a, was a, a platform presenter, which was an actor. He'd get up and recite verses, and he would do monologues. So he started. I said, it's great training. I didn't know I was going to be doing this. I thought I was just going to be rich and famous, and you guys have to pay tickets to see me, you know, all that stuff. All, those, all that fantasy, right? But I had people telling me, you don't want to go out there. You get your heart broken. I could have stayed home. And I said, no, it's just, it was just too, too uncomfortable to stay put. One of the other strategies, so perfectionism is a strategy that can, can trap us. Another one is we, that, that um, numbing. We can numb ourselves out. And so we do that through, and we can do it in subtle ways. doesn't mean we have to have an addiction, but we can numb ourselves. We can numb ourselves by watching too much television. You know, sit and, and do, you know, watch it over and over and over again. What Laura and I do is we have shows we love and we record them. Like we love Downton Abbey. Like I could, you know, I love, I love Downton Abbey. I can't wait till next season. You know, I want, we watch them all like in two days. Go, what are we going to do now? You know, but you know, I'm just worried about this family. You know, what's going to happen? But it's, see, and there's a difference between, there's a difference between numbing and comfort. So when we're mindful about what we're watching and how we comfort ourselves, so there's a whole different mindset around having a piece of chocolate and eating the entire chocolate bar. You know what I mean? There's a subtleties. It's not that we don't enjoy life. It's just that we, we bring a different awareness to it. But there's so many ways to numb ourselves through food, through alcohol, through drugs, through activities, you know, aberrant activities wherever they may be. So numbing. And to understand the line between numbing and comforting, which, which keeps us out of that connection with that divine, that divine spark of life. The other one that's very popular is foreboding joy. So catastrophizing. 
So let me lay this scene out for you. So here's this beautiful family. They're, it's, it's Christmas, and they're driving, from, they're driving from Edmonton to Calgary to see Grandma and Grandpa, and they're all dressed up beautifully, and they're in the car together, and they're singing Christmas carols. And this is the movie we go in, and we're seeing it, and you see the faces of all the children. There's three of them in the back seat, and one is five, and one is seven, and one is nine. Two boys and a girl, mom and dad, and they're singing and having a great time, and we're driving along, and there's a little bit of snow on the road, and then all of a sudden the wind starts blowing a little bit more, and the car's going along, and all of a sudden the the camera pans back. What do you think's gonna happen next? Where does your mind go? Accident. What? A skid? Yeah, could be a Mack truck. But that's how we're conditioned, catastrophizing. You know, oh my God, it's too great. I've been watching that Game of Thrones. Every time I fall in love with a character, they kill him. I'm like, I'm done with this show. I am done with this show. But we as a culture are, are conditioned to catastrophizing. I mean, I'm guilty of it to myself. And it's difficult for us to soften into joy. Because to soften into joy requires vulnerability. And man, we don't want to be vulnerable. Because we want to protect ourselves. And, and so when we, when we tighten up on the joy, we tighten up because we, we're protecting ourselves. In, in Vietnam, when the guys were, I had a lot of buddies that went to Vietnam, and, I, and at the time when it was happening, I was like, I'm not going in the army, I'm going to join the Marines if I got to go, because they had the lottery, and for a lot of wonderful reasons, my lottery number was really high. But, you know, when you're 17 years old, and they're fighting a war, and your number's going to get picked, it's like, man, oh man, I, I remember the week before that happened. But when guys were in Vietnam, and they would say, uh, they'd get a notification that they were going to be shipped out, they would call it being short. And so there's this mindset that now that I've been told I'm leaving, I'm not going to make it home. You know, this catastrophizing. Oh, man, I got my date. This is my date to leave, but I got to get from this date to that date, and I don't think I'm going to make it. But it's interesting how we're just... So when we find ourselves in the mindfulness of our, of our meditations, we can catastrophize, and we can start to imagine the worst-case scenarios. You know, like the family in the car. We've, been, we've seen so many shows... You know, when I see that coming now, I tell Laura, I don't want to watch this because I know I'm, I'm in love with this character now. They've set me up and they'll be gone. And you know what? They're gone. So part of it, it part of the way we move into this, this thing, one of the most powerful tools, and I've talked about it before, is gratitude. It's to find things to, to celebrate. And it can be just everyday simple things rather than the extraordinary. I've spent so much of my life looking for the extraordinary when I realize, wow, there's just such wonderful things here today. You know, to come into this, I, Martin was singing outside my office this morning. I was in there typing away, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. I went out and gave him a hug, said hi, so glad you're here, because I didn't know, you know, I forgot Martin would be here today. And that's an extraordinarily amazing moment. It's, it's just, but it's an everyday moment. You know, so when we spend time, so how can we condition ourselves when we start to catastrophize to move into that, that distraction of gratitude? It's just a powerful thing. So we, we, we separate body image from body reality. To celebrate our bodies and to flood love and flood light into our bodies. I mean, that's what happens. It's energy work. We do energy work here. We help shift and change consciousness. We do energy work here to help break down those, those limiting ideas and beliefs so that all of us can live and thrive in, in the joy of life. But when we go out in the world, it's so distracting. You know, these, the, the images we see, well, I'm not that, and I'm not that, and I'm not that. Well, we don't have to be that to love ourselves. That doesn't have to be the deal breaker. 
to move into that animal presence, to rest more, to sleep well, and realize that's okay, and to connect, connect with our dreams. Don Miguel talks about this extensively, to dream. Part of the practice he teaches with his, his uh, students is to dream, to dream in that waking state, to go into that deep state of relaxation, and to dream, and to listen to the body, and listen to the soul. And the last piece is just to simply pay attention, to listen to our bodies. Where do we hold our tension? Where are we holding, where are we limiting ourselves? Where are we catastrophizing? Looking at our thought process, looking at the way that we're doing life. There's an amazing um, quote. I'm gonna invite uh, Kevin to put up the last quote there on slide number four from Stephen and, and Andrea Levine. And there they are. I think Andrea just uh, made her transition or she's been ill. These people have done amazing work with, with hospice. Healing is not forcing the sun to shine, but letting go of that which blocks the light. And so it's, all, it's our opportunity in our spiritual practice and in our journey and our walk to move aside those restrictions. You know, in the co-creation work, we talk about the kinks and the hose, the ideal, and then we're not manifesting the ideal. Well, it's a limitation, it's a belief, it's a, it's a way of, of uh, limiting our experience so, that the, so the spirit can have that expression through us. Marion Woodman is an amazing um, thinker and teacher. She's a Canadian Jungian analyst, and she's done amazing work, written incredible uh, uh, insights, especially around uh, empowering women. And in, in uh, The Seeker's Guide, this copy of my book from uh, Elizabeth Lesser, Marion, she said, was one of the key uh, teachers in her life. And I wanted her to end today with this, this beautiful, beautiful uh, paragraph that she shared at the end of one of her workshops. She had four or five hundred women at the Omega Institute working with her and she said, in both the East and the West there's a deeply rooted desire or need to transcend who we naturally are. Some higher power, some God finds us unacceptable as we are. We've spent thousands of years learning the art of self-transcendence, but life is a matter of incarnation. The soul is an entity that lives within the human body. And the problem is too many people in our culture try to skip over this step and go straight into spirit. Over-spiritualization is a real danger, but usually the body starts to scream. If we can learn to listen to our body's symptoms or to our addictions or to the symptoms of the planet, we can start coming down to earth again. If you want to heal, heal your body and your soul. You have to surrender. You have to give up control and you have to stop trying to be perfect. You're perfect already, just as you are. Loving our bodies as it is. Kevin, can you put that third slide up? The tools? Yeah. To fall in love with your body just as it is now. To flood your body with love and energy. Each time you sit down, you can do that while you're driving your car to move from curing to interpreting. In other words, I don't need to fix this until I understand why I'm having these problems, because it's all related. Our body, it shows up in our body, it always shows up in the, in the, at the level of form last. So what is in my consciousness? Practicing gratitude. Rather than adopting an attitude of gratitude, practicing it, writing it down, having a gratitude journal. And listening to our bodies. We can all do that. We don't have to take a special class. We don't have, but, but to flood the body with love and appreciation. It carried you here. It's going to carry you a long way after this. 
to love it because as we, we fall more and more in love with that body, we take care of it in a different way because we truly do care for the things we love. So thank you so much. Have a spectacular, amazing rest of the day and a powerful, amazing week. And know that I'm going to be, every time I think of you, I'm going to be just sending you love. And I, and I appreciate you sending it back my way. So it is.